Hello and welcome to Start the Beat with Sykes. My name is Sykes and this is my podcast. Before we get started, I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank everyone who checked out the last episode. If you're one of those people, I hope you enjoyed the conversation and thanks so much for coming back. But for everyone out there who's new to the show, welcome. Feel free to make yourselves at home. And as always, there's beer, soda, water, coffee in the fridge. Cheers to everyone out there on the internet today. Hope you're doing well. For those of you unfamiliar with today's guest, I am joined by the one and only singer, songwriter, musician, Carl Mullen. Carl, welcome to the show and make some noise for the internet. Sorry, they're they're a very loud and rowdy bunch. Let me tell you, they're awake this morning. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. So, I know you from Get Hip. I don't know if you know this, but I, I work at Get Hip. I've been working there for almost a decade. I don't think we know that. I think I've seen you in, in the vast vaults <laughs> of, of vinyl over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but I don't know if we've ever like formally met. So it is nice to. Uh, finally meet you how are you doing today on this tuesday morning i'm good it's a scorcher up here it's like we're in the middle of a heat wave perhaps pittsburgh's the same so it's really hot and uh summer's here and it's kind of nice up here people have their masks off so we're seeing smiles for the first time mm-hmm. and as you know come to pittsburgh to play a gig which is going to be great because both myself and Mark Dignam haven't played live in like 18 or 19 months. Yes. So I'm quite excited at my first live gig back. Yeah, that's awesome. Congrats on making it through. Congrats yeah. on the new release, which is probably the main reason that we're here chatting today. Uh, you put out a uh, an album. It's called Fearless. Uh, and uh, you're going to be playing a show here in Pittsburgh soon, which is probably another reason that we're chatting today so let's get that out of the way before we get into any sort of nitty-gritty stuff what is the show it's june june 18th it's at the thunderbird it's a get hip presents mark digden my good friend also from dublin is going to play a set i'm going to play a set and of course it's supposed to be a solo show but then i end up inviting like 12 people to come play with me (laughs) there's going to be lots and lots of guests including dennis and steve from the plowman's lunch and we'll probably end up end off with a little plowman's lunch set or two yeah. And then after all of that, as if that wasn't enough, Greg Kosselich from Get Hip, uh, Mr. Get Hip himself, is going to do a DJ set. So it's going to be a fun night. And we priced it really low because we know as musicians, it's been a really hard 19 months for everybody. And everyone's kind of broke and we're just getting back into playing. So we wanted to just cover expenses and get our friends to come and see us and get other people to come see us. So it's six bucks in advance. And it's eight bucks at the door. It's a cheap show. Uh, Mark Ding will do a great set. He hasn't played, as I mentioned, for about uh, 18 months. I haven't played. Megan Williams is coming in. Sarah McNair is coming in. Hugh Watkins, Nathan Zub, all kinds of guests. It's going to be a fun night. Yeah. So, thank you. How do you feel? Did Did we mention that was at the Thunderbird? I I think we did. Okay. Just want to make sure. Thunderbird, Thunderbird, June 19th. Details are out. So. In terms of the past year, how do you feel that the past year has shaped this show? Do you think this show would be what it is or what it's going to be had it not oh, been question, Neil. the past year? I don't think year? so at all because perhaps like a lot of musicians or artists, when the pandemic hits, and I think sometimes we forget a little bit. I mean, you remember how kind of scary and odd it was last March and April when this was really mushrooming and lots and lots of people were dying and the figures were crazy and we were like cleaning our mail that came and, and you know, scared to go to the supermarkets and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And while all of that was going on, I hunkered down in my bedroom with a microphone. I just wrote these songs and recorded them pretty much first take. Um, so I didn't know if, that, if this record would have happened had it not been uh, for COVID. I was singing in a different way. I was writing different kinds of songs Um, And I think not just myself, but perhaps all of us, uh, and post, you know, the really difficult months, it's it's been a time of reflection, a time of super reflection for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the songs are about that. It was trying to find some joy, it was trying to find some light, it was trying to find some meaning, Um, particularly when you have kids, and I work with kids as well at a school, and it's a challenging time for them. Like the world literally was falling apart. Yeah. What was going to come next? 
Yeah, it was really interesting seeing uh, how, you know, people of different ages and demographics reacted to all of this stuff being out of their control because, you know, I have so many people in my life who are incredibly younger than me and incredibly older. And it was really interesting to see those differences amongst everyone. But uh, one thing that was very common amongst a lot of the creatives that I know was that they were able to take that time to maybe revisit or start a project that they never would have had the chance to in a thousand years. Yeah, you know, that was, you know cottage core. Everyone's been baking and sewing and writing and knitting <laughs> and painting and all of that. And of course, the one other thing we forget about, which was really scary, was that idiot was still in the White House. Oh yeah, sure. Talking yeah. about bleach cures and and just hateful tweets on a daily basis. So I mean, that was on top of everything else. We had the the, the Trump demic on top of that, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was uh, yeah. a lot. It was. Uh, I, I'm very. Uh, I mean, if I, if I could be thankful for any one thing, it would be that that happened in 2020 and not 2019 or 2018 or God forbid 2016, because it would have been a lot harder for uh, us. Probably we may not be here right now. I agree. The death toll could, could, could have been astronomical. It already is. Yeah. But it yeah. Could have been even worse. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, all of these years you have been, you know, doing, I, I imagine you've been playing music pretty consistently, but I don't know how much you've been like recording and releasing music. Cause those are two very different things. Yeah. I mean, um, I played a lot, obviously when I was in Pittsburgh, when I went to Philly to work at world cafe live, I had to step back a little bit because it was a venue that was doing seven nights a week, two shows a night. Mm-hmm. So I was, uh, you know, listening in the wings to some of my heroes playing and, uh, giving opportunity to emerging artists to play, looking and listening the whole time. And I went home and played on my own. But it was after that, that was about seven or eight years, that I started back in again. And, of course, recording these days, as opposed to the old days when you had to rent a studio that was quite expensive and deal with huge, big tape, it's now uh, on your computer. And the Logic Pro and all these other plugins that one can do mm-hmm. with better microphones. Um, it's not analog. It's not the best studio in the world. But you can make a record that, that that's not bad. Yeah, uh, in in your uh, studio, in your bedroom these days, and then that's what I did. That's awesome. So that's actually a conversation I would love to get in with you, because there are, we'll say, you know, people of a certain time and place that have a hard time embracing new technology, especially people in music. You know, a lot of time it's the whole, oh, if it's not recorded analog, it doesn't sound authentic yada 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 i imagine you're maybe not somebody that stands on that platform what are your opinions of that yeah no i mean when i was in the booking world for years i didn't care if i got a cassette that was falling apart and i had to put it back together again and there was holes in it but something came across in that cassette that's what i wanted to book not a million dollar recording i mean anybody can sound good with a million dollar recording you better yeah um but I think that something of the essence comes through no matter what the technology is, which is why I think YouTube and all these people that are so successful doing things from the basement, perhaps like your own podcast, you don't need, you know, CBS to, uh, to broadcast. You're doing a great job with the technology you have. It isn't just about the technology out of things. It's never been about that. Certainly not for me. It's never been about the gear. There are people who play on, you know, K guitars that they find in yeah. trash dumps and they sound wonderful. Now, I mean, so I've never hung up on the technology personally. No, you have a, a background in the world of punk rock. From you know what, <laughs> I do and I don't. You do and you don't. If you listen back to car signals, we sounded nothing. When people think of punk rock, I think, well, at least I do, I think of the of the clash of the pistols of the New York Dolls. Sure. Not not the Orange Day, Green Day kind of bands. That was a whole other Californian sound. But I think of you know the Buzzcocks and all of that. And car signals never sounded like that. Yeah, but would you say that maybe there was like a similar uh, ethos, ethos to it? Because I always think, when I think of punk rock, I think of it almost like food. There's not one kind of food and there's not one kind of punk, but the thing that's common in it is that there's always a similar ethos to how it's being carried out. Like I've known... It was, I mean, and there was a scene locally and we were part of it. Most of the other bands all dressed alike. 
kind of had hairstyles and we had none of that. Mm-hmm. It, it was really about experimenting with music and uh, we were most unfashionable looking, I think. Um, <laughs> but to some extent, when I think of punk rock, that's what I think of magazines mm-hmm. with, the, with the Ramones leather jackets and the haircuts and Susie and the Banshees and all of that stuff. And we were never a part of that. Yeah. Um, not that we were against it. We, we liked, we went out to see shows like that. I saw the Ramones at the decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And it was great. It just wasn't our bag. Our bag was something different. Totally. I get that. And I think that it definitely makes sense if you, you know, have a, if back then, if one would have had a, uh, some sort of a device to let them see the future music that you and everyone else who was a part of that project would do in one way or another, it would totally make sense. Like, yeah, they're on a different path, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. But I think that, you know, what's interesting, I think sometimes when you're younger and you're finding your voice as a musician, you know, it's easy to gravitate towards like these more, um, something about punk and anything that was adjacent to it. You know, if you're just a young artist trying to find your voice and express yourself in an authentic way, I think it's really easy to get wrapped up in those communities, even if you're not 100% a part of it. You mean you're, you're emulating the style that you like or whatever? No, like like if you're a young artist, but like you're trying to do something new and fresh and like like you don't necessarily want to emulate something, but you're still doing something that doesn't really fit in with any particular sound. A lot of the times those people tend to gravitate towards the punk communities because in one way or another, they're a little bit more accepting of hearing new things rather than like, trying well, to market straight for a well, rock One of the crowd. things I did like about some of the punk bands was that nobody really could play. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll listen to bluegrass these days and they're all out of Berkeley jazz and they play really well. It's too much. Sure. I prefer the old school bluegrass or the old school country music. Mm-hmm. And with a lot of the bands, I mean, I used to love the slits and people who really couldn't play but had really inventive melody lines and chords and drum beats. Yeah. There's a great band from Pittsburgh, The Puke. Mm-hmm. With a fabulous song called "When I'm Bored, I Play One Chord." And of course, <laughs> the song had one chord in it, and it was just great. Uh, another great band was the Cardboards. Again, they really weren't a punk band; they were more electronica, maybe German-influenced uh, art band of some kind. But they were just wonderfully creative and original. Yeah, I and think at the heart of most of the great bands at the time in Pittsburgh was this originality. You know, and they were all friends, even though our version of original was quite quite different we'd Mm -hmm. all hang out together and play together you know that makes i've always been very curious because i was born in 1985 so i obviously missed the you know golden years golden years right (laughs) and i always look back on how people romanticize to some degree like what punk rock was but when i talk when i in general but i guess in pittsburgh too but um when I talk with people who were a part of it, I always get this feeling that it was so much more diverse of a thing and what the sound of punk was or what we consider the full sound of punk now is like this romanticized, very narrow version of what was actually going on. Cause I think there was so much more, like you mentioned, like artistic outside the box stuff and not all of it was the Buzzcocks or the Clash or the Ramones. There was other people doing things and at the time everybody right, would right. have considered it punk. And in England, the two-tone thing was, was just fantastic and wonderful music and really was a kind of ahead of its time in breaking down uh, racial barriers and uh, the whole two-tone aesthetic was black and white musicians playing together and mm-hmm. learning from each other and borrowing from each other. And that was just fantastic. And there was lots and lots of visual artists involved in Pittsburgh, I'm not quite sure, but there was a huge amount of photographers. We'd go to a gig. Most of the bands would go to a gig, and there'd be 20 or 30 photographers there with really old-fashioned cameras. Mm-hmm. And it was a kind of an artsy scene. And to way to some extent, the audience was bigger than the bands, you know? Uh, and I think that's why people remember it fondly in Pittsburgh. The bands have gone, but the audience is still there. And most of them, if not all of them, are still involved in photography or art or painting or sculpture or video or whatever mm-hmm. it is they're doing. And the audience was always loomed large in Pittsburgh. The bands were on the stage, but at the Banana or the Lions Walk or wherever we were, Phase 3, uh, the audience was uh, was pretty special. Now, you mentioned having an interest in watching like or seeing or hearing artists that really couldn't play, but they were able to create something that was maybe a little bit more unique because of their limitations. And, you know, even comparing that to um, newer 
some bluegrass guys that you mentioned that maybe are yeah, overplaying. I, I think so because it had come off, you know, uh, the early seventies, the overblown prog rock thing, mm-hmm. where everybody had enormous amount of ability and an enormous amount of talent and could play all kinds of solos, but they really weren't saying anything. Yeah, and here were a bunch of kids who couldn't play, saying, you know, "F you to the police" or "F you to racism" or "F you to the queen" or whatever it was. And it resonated. It resonated mm-hmm. with people that there needed to be a change, not just in the musical style, but in society uh, as well. Yeah, you know, I've always found it, you know, a lot more interesting looking at the drawing that maybe a five-year-old does versus like a skilled painting. Like try, like you're, like you know, thinking about like a, a young person that is just trying to convey an idea and has no idea how to really get it on a piece of paper. And it might not look anything in the world like what they're Absolutely. saying it does. I mean, yeah, I agree with you. The, that's discovery, and discovery is yeah. always interesting, whether you're five or our age or my age. And discovery, and I think that a lot of the bands and a lot of what you're suggesting in the art world is absolutely true. To that sense of discovery, that freedom that kids have, sometimes can get learned out of you. And funny, I'm sitting here in my art studio mm-hmm. where I teach five-year-old kids. And the people are always asking me, what do you teach them? And I'm like, I'm just teaching them to be themselves. I'm just letting them loose with pencils and paints. And uh, the place is full of big mess uh, yeah, of yeah. kids exploring and saying, what does this this do? What does that do? And yeah. you discover what it is they can do. Yeah, I think That's that... Really, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. I, th- I think that it's it's so important to not lose that sense of discovery because it really isn't attached to a particular age correct? I think there are just some yeah, people yeah. that well, get... unfortunately, sometimes it, it can dry up uh, for all kinds of reasons. Yeah. You know, it, it just brings something else to mind. Not only was the music scene going on, there were all the people making the posters. Mm-hmm. There were some people decorating the stage when you got there. Sure. There was projectors. There was all kinds of accoutrements. We were like, it was like the, the situationist in France or something. Mm-hmm. The art wasn't just of the writing the songs and the playing the songs but it was of an entire lifestyle, an entire embracing of, of alternative ideas, so to speak. Th- it was poetry. We had lots of poets on stage, people writing poetry. Uh, things happened out in fields and under bridges. And all kinds of things were going on. Yeah. We had a house we lived in in uh, Oakland, the old Hare Krishna house, that we painted the entire house inside and out. The shower <laughs> was painted, inside the bathroom was painted, inside the fridge and the freezer were painted. It was an interesting <laughs> You know, that's why I when I think about punk and like the, what it means to me, that's probably why I always like, I think that music is just such a small part of it because even you're saying it was, it was about so much more than just the people that were on stage. There was a whole community of people that were contributing to this movement. Yeah. Fashion and, and, and film and everything. It was, it was all embraced. And that do it yourself aesthetic is, is really important and, and still exists in some small pockets. And, uh, and I hope it continues to do so because, again, it's that sense of discovery, that sense of what can I do. Sure. And, uh, well, I mean, you, you've you gone from, I mean, a, a loose trajectory for you, Carl, would be playing in a, a not punk but punk kind of band to all of these years later, decades later. Now you're, you know, recording music on a computer technology that didn't even exist and you're still doing it yourself. So yeah. all these years later, you're still doing it. Some of us never grow up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what um, a- you know. somebody recently p- posted an old, old Mike Syke did. He posts the old things from the punk days. You probably know his uh, Facebook page. Mm-hmm. And there was a view of car sickness where it said, the singer and the songwriting sounds like they're trying to invent a new genre every song. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've often been guilty of that and still am guilty of that because although this album is acoustic and quiet, I still have my electric guitars at home and I still have my fuzz boxes and I still make experimental music and perhaps the next record we're talking and thinking about a car sickness reunion of some kind with Dennis, Steve and I. Yeah. And we might do something completely different. Uh, we don't know what that is yet. But uh, yeah. yeah, we're still open to that. Yeah, no, I think that it's really cool to always flex that creativity muscle and for somebody who has from my understanding is you've spent your life consuming and contributing to the art community in one way or another, whether it be audio or visual or whatever. So I can't imagine that you would ever want to lock yourself into a box and just do like 
something that you've already done in the past. Like there's a part of it's probably like, okay, well let's do this car sickness thing. We want it to be like what car sickness was, but what was car sickness? Car sickness was always something kind of different anyway. So the rule book can kind of be thrown out the window before you even start. Cause there never was one to begin with. There's somebody mowing the lawn outside That's my, okay. where I am and it's challenging. Let's hope they move. That's okay. Oh, they're right outside. Maybe I'll plug a speaker in. Oh, I see. You can't hear me. Got it. How about that? Hello. Hello. Oh, hello. I plugged a speaker in. Okay. Cool. Could you repeat that last little bit? Okay. So. I was trying to define car sickness, was it? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, what I was saying was if car sickness does come back and you do a reunion and like you're thinking about what songs to make before you even get started there's no need for a rule book because there wasn't really one to begin with oh gosh no no yeah. i might play the drums and dennis could play the guitar <laughs> steve might sing yeah totally uh, it would not be uh, going back to the old songs at all although we did a reunion last year because as i'm sure you know get hip put out that great mm-hmm. uh, kind of best of car sickness yeah, uh, and we played for that, and we did resurrect a few old tunes. No, this project would be something new, and we're still dreaming it or talking about it. We've no idea what it's going to look like or sound like. Mm-hmm. But I know it'll be fun to make. <laughs> so I'm entering a crossroads now in my life. Okay, so I'm curious if I don't know if you if you went through anything like this, being somebody that has continued to do music throughout your life. So you know, I'm I'm turning. I guess the age, my, the age doesn't really matter. Let's just say that I've gotten to a point where I'm starting to lose some of the attachment that I have to the music that I've made over the past couple decades of my life because I'm growing up. And I'm wondering, you know, yourself, you know, when you were in your 20s or 30s, could you have pictured yourself doing like a singer-songwriter acoustic type album? Or have you been surprised by the types of music that you've experimented and recorded as you've, you know, gone through life? Yeah, no, not really. Like back to that review that that, that, that accuser said car sickness, you know, that every song is reinventing a genre or something. Because I've always liked experimental music, world music, mm-hmm. folk music, Celtic music, uh, primitive uh, bluegrass, country and blues all at once. I never really understood where you could only like, you know, people say they only like classic rock, which sure. I don't like at all, actually. <laughs> um, you know, but I think not being aware of, of the, the, the vastness, I mean, look at the records behind you. You obviously have a similar listening taste. Yeah. I would be very hard put just to only listen to folk music mm-hmm. or only listen to 60s rock and roll or only well, listen to blues. I, w- I want it all. Yeah, I mean, I... I still scour the internet for, you know, uh, bizarre tapes from Africa or cassette <laughs> tapes from Africa if you're mm-hmm. ever on that blog. It's just fabulous. Yeah, you know, I, There's just great music out there. Yeah, I love listening to all kinds of music and I always have. I grew up with like a very diverse taste in music because everybody in my family listened to wildly different things, you know, like... My my dad was our my dad was into, you know, death metal and thrash metal, and my uncle loved Ella Fitzgerald and Aretha Franklin, and my uncle and was no reason of, you can't like both exactly. I mean, yeah. you know, I just loved music so much that whenever I was growing up and hearing all of these things, it was just I always just liked hearing people perform, and also like the excitement that my grandma had if she was showing me you know, an Aretha Franklin song or the excitement that my uncle had showing me a Rolling Stones song or the excitement, the quiet excitement that my dad had if he was listening to a Cannibal Corpse tape when I was around and just like, don't tell your mom, that kind of stuff. I loved it. So much fun. Just because like there's this energy about it. But you know, like even though I like so many different kinds of music, I have a hard time seeing myself ever like creating some certain styles of music, but I don't want to say that I never will. I'm just curious what maybe I might be doing musically two decades from now, because I don't plan on quitting, but I also don't see myself still making like heavy metal or hip hop or anything when I'm 55 years old, but maybe I will. I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, you know, it's all open. They may invent some new instruments, or there may be some implant that you get where you can <laughs> communicate with somebody in China and in Africa and mm-hmm. hum at the same time. I mean, it's it's who knows? Yeah, who knows what, uh, what, 
can go out there. But I say embrace it and learn from it. And two, with all that music, sometimes I used to go into restaurants and I programmed when I was in Philly for a while. I got hired to do it. The people would play, you know, death metal at three in the afternoon. And I'm like, no, 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 that's Ella Fitzgerald. You need, you need the death metal thing, maybe after 10. Mm-hmm. Somehow you don't have to have loud rock and roll for breakfast. Sure. That's what you want, of course. But most of us don't in restaurants. And I like to kind of ease into that. So I came up with this idea of programming for different times of the day, different kinds of emotions that go with that. Because that's the other thing about consuming music. It'd be like only reading one kind of book. That, that wouldn't really be good for us, I think. And I like, I like to, to read a vast different styles of literature. Yeah. And the same with films. It's, just, it's you know, it's, why stop at this little narrow sliver it, of, of uh, what's available? It's almost the same with food, too. I think that's why we literally have a breakfast, lunch, and dinner menu, right? I mean, yeah, well, well, increasingly these days, I mean, when I grew up, it was just Irish food on the table. <laughs> we, came to, we came to America and there was Chinese. I guess that is probably and, more of an American thing. That's, yeah, you're, you're and probably. Moroccan, and it was wonderful. And big cities are great for that. And Pittsburgh increasingly is great for that. I went to a place down in Smallman Street where I used to have a studio upstairs and you could order from like 10 different places. Mm. Eat it all there yeah, the, the Smallman Galley. Right next to Pamela's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, you know, it, it seems, you know, there are a lot of, I don't know, you just seem like somebody that's just kind of embraced the change that has come with art and music and food and life in general. Uh, how does one remain so positive throughout life in a time when it's so easy to not be positive? I would I mean, maybe uh, I would maybe assume that a lot of it has to do with your job and working with kids, perhaps. Maybe, maybe I didn't always work with kids. I used to work with dreadful musicians in the music <laughs> industry <laughs> who drive you crazy with the pettiness. Um, I don't know. I think it's, I think I got it from my mom. She always said, "What's the choice? What's the option?" Mm-hmm. And no matter what happened, she got up the next day with a smile. I made a cup of tea and sang a song. I did the best of it. And that was also a thing about music for me. It was always about around the kitchen table. My mother was a singer and everything was a song and every day was a song. And I still maintain that the best venue I've ever been at in my life was my kitchen table. <laughs> the drunk uncle would come in at Christmas. Uh-huh. Drunk granny at the Christmas table who sang the same song every year for 10 years. Champagne, Charlie is my name. I mean, it was just great. It was theater, it was music, it was live, it was community. And it was, and it was fun. It was great fun. Well, now, when did you start actually like getting into a music scene? Was it around the car sickness days or prior to that? No, no, I played in, uh, you know, I was in folk bands in Ireland. I was in a blues band in Ireland with a bunch of older guys, but they hired me. I didn't get hired. We didn't get paid because <laughs> I was able to make 12 bar chords. Mm-hmm. And we did 10 songs in the key of E. Uh, and I would have to, and I always say, because it's true, the blues was my first love. I was always interested in growing up in Ireland listening to blues because you never knew the context of it. Yeah. There was no history that, that we understood about it. Mm. There was something came through the essence of the music that I thought was spiritual and wonderful and connecting. Um, and I forgot your question. Oh, just uh, what your history was in music oh, yeah, scenes yeah, yeah. and playing with? No, I always kind of played in you know, community folk bands and local folk bands. I was never one of those people who said, oh, let's form a band and be really famous and write pop hits, whatever. Yeah. And maybe I should have, but it just never occurred to me. I what, wanted to do it to, to write my own songs and have some fun yeah. and create a community. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were getting started in the music scene, um, the idea of like writing pop hits, did that mean the same thing that it does today? Was the music industry as big as it was? Or as big as it is now? The music that we grew up on was always the experimental. I mean, we loved, you know, Captain Beefheart. Mm, Yeah. As a bunch of us as kids. And when I came to America, still to this day, even people don't know who he is. And I'm like, we thought he was like the Elvis of the United States. (laughs) So innovative and creative. And it connected us to the blues. And I played for people and they laugh at the time signatures or they can't get past the voice or or the kind of surrealistic lyrics uh, in some of the cases. I'm just imagining, uh, you just made me think of like, you ever see those people that are like Elvis collectors and have like Elvis memorabilia everywhere? What if there was like a Captain Beefheart house that was just full of Captain oh, Beefheart sure there is. memorabilia? I'm sure there is. Do you, was there, there ever was a, a Captain? There was a very influential British DJ, perhaps you've heard of him or know of him, called John Peel. Yeah. 
And we listened to John P. like religiously, literally, religiously. Mm-hmm. And John was a huge Captain Beefheart fan, huge Captain Beefheart. I wonder fan. if there was ever a Captain Beefheart action figure. I'll, I'll need to acquire, see if I could find one. Maybe, or- maybe we have a new business coming up. <laughs> um, well, I've I've got all the books, and I've got all the box sets, and I've got. Mm-hmm. I don't have any autographs. I always wanted to get one of his paintings. And I always wanted to go see him when he was living in the desert before he died. Mm. It was like, I'm, I'm going to go out there and find him and just meet him. Yeah. And uh, it never happened, unfortunately, for me. Mm. It never happened. Whenever you came to the States originally, was there any sort of a sense of culture shock or had like the world already starting to kind of been like become this mixing pot of ideas and cultures? No, there was a huge culture shock because at that time in Europe, there was a bit of a time lag between the America that was exported and the real America. Mm-hmm. So I arrived in 76, you know, dressed like uh, Frank Sinatra. I had a hat and a skinny tie and the black tie and a, and a suit, uh, and, you know, a pair of polished shoes. And I got off the plane, everyone's wearing baggy clothes. And I'm like, where the hell is America? Mm-hmm. And we were watching all of these Miles Davis videos and all the old Cagney films, everyone the hats on, everyone yeah. had the suits on, and that had vanished. Mm-hmm. And I, I was quite disappointed for a while. And the jazz that was being played at that time it was like a light jazz, or like an, and I didn't like it at all. I, I wanted to find bebop because that's what we had heard, and that's what I love and still love. Yeah. Yeah, so there was a real sense that uh, the America I found wasn't the America I imagined. Yeah. I'm sure that's still the case for many immigrants. <laughs> so it wouldn't have been too long then before car sickness had started up after you came, came to the States. initially in 76. It was in Philadelphia. And I was like, what the hell is everyone waving flags about? I, you know, we didn't get much American history growing up in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was the anniversary of the, the Declaration of Independence, I think. Wasn't it? Yeah. 1976. And the bell was still in uh, on the street. You could actually go up and touch the mm. Liberty Bell thing with mm-hmm. the crack in it. Yeah. Um, but I think Steve and I went to see The Clash in uh, Cleveland in 1978 or 1979, one of their first gigs in the States. But I'd come in 76, but then I'd gone home to London in 77. And that's when I explored the London uh, live music scene for a little bit. I went out to a lot of shows. So how did you come into contact with like Steve and Dennis? Because they're also pretty open-minded people, especially like musically and artistically. And it's Very like, so. everyone who ended up in the band yeah. all had that same, uh, and still have, it, it was quite interesting. Uh, it was completely accidental. I think I met Steve after there was either the jam or the clash gig in 78 or 79. And we were literally right in the front, hanging on to Strummer's microphone stand, mm-hmm. getting sweated on, you know, <laughs> drinking uh, little small bottles of whiskey. Nice. Getting completely loaded. Mm-hmm. And I somehow, I think, I turned, and this guy was there, and he's like, where are you from? And we're from Pittsburgh. I think we gave him a ride home. Or maybe he gave me a ride home, I don't remember. And that's when we decided to uh, start a band. And funny enough, he'd actually, I'd said to him, what instruments do you play? And he said, the bagpipes. And I was like, that's great. <laughs> Three chords and the bagpipes. What a great sound that would be. Yeah. But then uh, he turned, it turned out to be synthesizers as well. Yeah. No, that, that's awesome that you were fortunate enough to find some like-minded people early on because a lot of times it takes people years to find those people that they click with artistically. A lot of times when bands don't really work out, it's just because like I don't think enough people are taking the time to talk about things other than the music and the art, but like who they are as people and what they want to do outside of the band. I find that the bands that tend to be the most successful are people that have like similar values outside of the band. And then they can bring all of that into the art. Yeah. 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 I think you're probably right. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, as uh, you're getting ready to release this one, I know this, the, the, the album is released digitally right now. People can listen to it on uh on Bandcamp and other platforms but there is a physical release that's coming out soon for there fearless is a right release coming up with some new tracks and i record them as i mentioned in my bedroom but i have a very good friend in kilkenny ireland who is a producer and a great engineer so i would record the tracks and send them to him and then i you know i go to sleep and there's that at that time lag as i was going to sleep he's getting up so then i would wake up and he'd have sent the tracks back to me I made some additions or re-equated or a little bit of mastering. Mm-hmm. 
Then we send the tracks on to Spain where my cousin Pat Bride, the, the musician lives and he would add something. And then again with this time lag, it was, I'd wake up and it's like, it was always instant. Mm -hmm. uh, the tracks would be back. So it was this also great COVID moment of collaborating with musicians, not live, but be some Zoom stuff mm -hmm. and, uh, and digitally by being able to send these, these uh, tracks digitally, which is mind boggling. Yeah. You told me when I was 20, that I'd be able to send a track to Ireland, you know, via satellite link that would come back to me and that we'd send it to Spain and we'd all work together, send it to Greg. And uh, yeah, it's, this thing comes out. It's staggering. It's so cool. You know, like yeah. we, we do a thing with one of the bands that I play in. It's a lot more um, electronic based. So we actually write as we're writing songs we do it like on a computer it's just by nature of the music and it's yeah. cool because what we're able to do is like instead of like here's my ideas that i have for this song let me play them for you i put my ideas for this i worked on these ideas for this song at home i put them in our dropbox so you can download the files and add them to the session when we get to rehearsal and we have all of the ideas like already on the computer and we can kind of like take parts of the song and cut them and move them around to kind of like get a structure together. It's a really interesting way of songwriting prior. Yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating to that kind of, it was reminded me of when we recorded that first car sickness album, because we went into the studio and we was almost, we were almost like, uh, you know, the beach boys and the Beatles because we played the studio Someone went to the bathroom and it made a gurgling noise. We're like, well, let's put a mic on that. <laughs> and then we found these fuzz boxes and we're like, what if we put the vocals through the fuzz box? What would that do? And the engineer's like, we can't do that. And we're like, oh yeah, we definitely want to do that. Yeah. And we did lots and lots of things like that. One song we went out in the van parked outside the studio, all got in the van and started beeping the horn with the engine running and recorded a song. I think that was faster or something like that. Um, but all those kinds of things, we just played the studio. We were banging on the pipes. We were anything that was left lying around, uh, we would use, including sometimes an old Mellotron that we'd find and use, uh, those kinds of things. Yeah. So uh, it's about the approach. Had there been electronic computers then, that's what we would have used. But we just used what was around. Totally. Scissors clicking and whatever mm -hmm. yeah I mean, in your jackets going up and down making rhythms yeah when i first started making music it was actually with a like a, a, a cassette recorder like a tape to tape recorder that my grandmother had and uh, i had a cheap little drum set and a little plastic keyboard and i learned that like you could like i could play a dumb little drum rhythm uh and record it to tape and then put it in the other deck and play that back and play something on top of it yeah, and like just keep on like, basically like tr layering tr like like tracks on top of tracks by swapping these two tapes back and forth. It was really cool. Yeah, yeah, you know, we could do that as well. We used to do it with cassette tapes where we mm -hmm. would and we did it live actually at the banana many many times. We'd have two old reel to reel players, one on one side and one on the other side of the room, and we'd record and run the tape all the way across the room, like twenty feet or whatever, all the way back behind the drum set and back into the same playhead. So it was a really, really long delay system. That was oh, at the time cool. where Robert Fripp inspired us with his Frippertronics. Mm -hmm. We used to have a name for our kind of, oh, ours was called Hysteronics, I think. <laughs> and, uh, we did it a few times on some radio shows, and uh, it was just great experimenting with that. We did a show once, I believe, where we used 20 or 30 cassette players all playing different kinds of noises as part of it, as part of a track, as part of a song. That's really, really cool. In terms of recording your own music now, is this is this album Fearless? Is this the first time that you really like recorded and engineered yourself? Yeah, I mean engineering. Uh, you know, I just bend the microphone down and get really quiet and get close to it because mm -hmm. I was trying to recreate that sense that I mentioned of growing up in Ireland where you're at the kitchen table and it's really intimate. Yeah, and when you put the headphones on, perhaps like you now because you have them on there, you hear your 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 space, your headspace inside yourself. And I, I like to use these microphones called ear trumpet. You know these ear trumpet mics? No. They're old-fashioned recreations. It's a company out of Seattle. Okay. These young guys in Seattle make these wonderful mics called ear trumpet. They're condenser mics. And they just sound so wonderful and so rich, and you can really get up. I'll have to check it out. Mic'd. Yeah, give That sounds awesome. You know, and, and that's what I use exclusively was an ear trumpet on the voice and an ear trumpet on the guitar. 
And as I mentioned, I particularly like, I still favor, I drive some people mad. I'm not a person that likes to go into a studio and do something 30 times. I, I get bored. I'm like, well, let's do the next song. Mm-hmm. So I just do them once and they just come out as is. They're almost like paintings because I'm also a painter. I kind of quite, quite like that approach. Yeah. Immediacy, that mm-hmm. sense of discovery, you know, I just do it. I really, really value immediacy in art, especially in music. I think that, you know, Anytime I'm recording in the studio, I also prefer to just try to get it done as quickly as possible. Like this is what it is. This is, I want the end result to be a reflection of my skill and ability and knowledge of this song at this point in time. If I need to be better about this, then you need to rehearse this more before you go into the studio. If you want it to be a certain way, I hate recording things over and over again. It's just like, it sterilizes it to some degree. It's like, you're just, you're trying to polish it too much and like you're squeezing all the life out of it because literally the life, the energy is coming, like it's losing, like it's, you're running out of it every time you try to do the take over and over and over. The discovery is gone. Yeah, totally. That that idea of this discovery is gone Mm -hmm. of making something in that moment because otherwise you're just editing and editing and editing. I mean, some people like that. And again, I'm not writing writing hit records. I didn't make this record think it was going to be the billboard charts. Um, and not everyone likes that approach, and that's yeah. perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine. Yeah, there, but it's certainly it's more like a field recording. There's some. There's some in my bedroom. Mm-hmm. As somebody that like I produce and engineer and record most of my own music as well, and as somebody that has like experience in engineering and mixing and mastering and things like that, there are some projects that are very bloated and huge and just very dense that it's like interesting to listen to them from a technical perspective it's like like maybe like some progressive rock record where it's like i don't like this music per se but the way that this was recorded and achieved from a technical standpoint is like a a mammoth it's maybe the same way that i would go to a museum and look at some like old renaissance painting where it's like very lifelike and detailed and it's crazy that they were able to accomplish this but i also find that that painting of a red square over on the other side of the building a lot more interesting personally but it's like there's 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 value in everything absolutely absolutely you know since you you kind of answered a question before I got a chance to ask it to you, but I'm going to ask you it anyways, and we'll probably wrap up shortly after this. I don't want to take up too much of your time, and I feel like I could probably talk with you for a very, very long time, but that's that's a nice thing. Um, in terms of recording your own music, sometimes it can really change the way that you approach recording a song or writing or performing a song. Did you find recording yourself created any sort of... Uh, issues in terms of like having that immediacy to be able to like try to retract something and redo something or just getting in your own headspace versus maybe having somebody else in the room that could tell you like try this do this like was it yeah, a little different maybe, maybe i mean i think it might have been part of covid it was late at night uh, the family was asleep so i kind of had to sing a little quieter than usual mm. i went a little closer to the microphone and with the headphones on a little closer to the microphone it was huge. You know, I could really hear that, that, that voice in my head. And so I sang in a different way than I'd ever sang before. And that was kind of interesting and quiet. Sometimes it's hard to recreate that. And sometimes the, the challenge with doing something first takes and putting a record out is then I listen to it. I'm like, how does that go again? Mm-hmm. So I'm having to relearn some of these songs to play them on the 18th at the Thunderbird. And I'm hoping at the Thunderbird, because it's the first gig in 18 months that I'll be able to, maintain that intimacy and not have to suddenly belt it out there yeah because i've done that over the years and i busked for years and i can belt it out when necessary yeah but i think it's necessary it's it's for me at this stage i want to draw people in Mm -hmm. and have it be understated rather than the the thunderbird's an interesting room to be doing this show because that's a space that could be it simultaneously has the potential to be very intimate and but it can also facilitate a very loud environment so large capacity you can really you can really go either way perhaps depending on what where the energy takes you i know i well it'll be you know it'll be a lesser capacity because of covid and Mm -hmm. people were just getting comfortable the tables will be apart and all that stuff it'll be a sit-down show with tables but tickets are selling quite well and uh it's gonna be a great show 
It's going to be a great show. Apart from me, all of the guests coming, Megan Williams and Steve and Dennis from Plans Lunch and Car Sickness and Mark Dignam and Nathan Zub um, and Sarah McNair. It's going to be a fun show. I hope you can make it. Yeah. I June 19th, Thunderbird Cafe. 18th. 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 You'll miss 18th. it if you come on the 19th. Sorry about that. No, Why did no. I? I was close enough. I'm, I'm only human. What do you Absolutely. want from me? <laughs> so what do you got going on? Before then, what do you, what are you doing to prepare to come back to Pittsburgh? You saving room for a for a Permanis sandwich? Are you are you a Permanis oh, guy? Yeah, yeah, I'm a big, <laughs> big Permanis fan. Yeah, I come back to Pittsburgh, not a, a whole lot, but I've been back a couple of times. I mean, I come back a couple of times a year. I've got mm-hmm. big kids who live there. Yeah, hello, going back to Pittsburgh. I know it like the back of my hand. I used to always stay at the Ace, and I went back with my family, and I walk into the Ace to the door and a woman was leaving. She goes, my God, are you Carl Mullen? And it's like, she hasn't seen me for 30 years or something. Yeah, she's so been there the fun. whole time. <laughs> yeah. So it's fun. Where I live now, no one knows who I am. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm anybody. I am with anybody. But it's fun to go back to Pittsburgh and make old connections and see old friends. And that's why I think, it's, as I mentioned, it's really special that it's the first live gig in 18 months after this pandemic to reconnect with Mark Dignam, who I met in London on a stage in London at the Oh, Fabulous. wow at the famous 12-bar club that had been started in, like, I think the 13th century or something. There was this weird venue that was still a bit there. And that's where I met Mark. And uh, so to meet him and all these other musicians and play together live on that stage on the 18th is going to be really special for everybody. Mm-hmm. You, for me. you just got to remember the songs. Yeah, I know. I've got to learn them. <laughs> <laughs> you New know, versions. Yeah, that you could always do that, too. It's... Uh, you, there's a there's something about uh, the idea of a song needing to be a hundred percent of how it was recorded, represented live. That is always kind of like rubbed me the wrong way. You know? know, me too. Whenever I do covers, and I rarely, rarely do, the people always go, "That's not how the song goes." I'm like, "Well, it is now. This is my version of the song." And they're like, "Because they want to recreate the radio song version of it," and I always just wanted to do an interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. Yeah, there's kind of like a thing sometimes when you're doing cover songs, especially if it's something that's a very uh, beloved no. track where, uh, yeah. you know, you're, you're messing with people's nostalgia to some degree and they, they, hold, they hold a lot of value in that. Sid Vicious is my way as opposed to Frank Sinatra. When we, I worked <laughs> in the original hot dog shop in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. we knew the jukebox guy and he'd give us the keys and we'd put our own 45s on the jukebox. Oh, wow. We put in a $10 bill and play Sid Vicious's My Way like 25 times, it caused riots. Mm-hmm. That's my uncle's favorite song. How dare you play that? It was hysterical. And this is back in, I don't know, 80 or 81, whatever that record came mm-hmm. out. But yeah, that was a great example of, 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 a, of a great interpretation that got people's goats because it was so anti-Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Who I like, actually. Yeah. So the last question I'm going to ask you, it's... Uh, we already touched base on it before because you mentioned that you and the the car sickness guys were talking about maybe one day doing something. But outside of that, in terms of, you know, Carl Mullen as a musician, do you think you'll be continuing to write and do some new stuff? Or was oh, this yeah, album yeah. just I've a... I've recorded five or six new tracks. I think I sent you one. Yes. That, and I want to put three or four of them at least on the vinyl release as opposed to the digital release that will come out. And I've been teaching, I'm learning to play uh, lap steel and I really want to make a country record. Okay. I really, really like early country music. And I know some guys down in Nashville and I might go down there. Uh, well, of course, I want to make the blues record. But I also want to make an experimental record with like 500 electric guitars in the middle of the forest all feeding back. Mm-hmm. And I'm screaming at the moon kind of a record. <laughs> uh, I've got that in me somewhere. Okay. Um, children's record. What else am I going to do? I'm, I'm busy. I'm really involved in painting these days yeah. as a visual artist, but I like to do both. And um, yeah, there's a lot of records to be made. And that car sickness record will be made probably within the next year. That's awesome. Okay. So I lied. One, one more question. Hopefully this doesn't spiral into something too much, but I just had this thought. So you have been doing visual art have you been doing visual art maybe as long as you've been doing music? Probably longer. Longer. Probably so longer. has your visual art gone through the same various stages and styles that your music has? Yeah, yeah, I think a little bit because 
it's both kind of the same for both of them. I kind of learned on the job to some extent. I have zero training in music, mm-hmm. zero training in painting. But I just stuck at it and developed my own way of doing it both and ended up doing it both. You know, when you paint for 20 or 30 years, uh, it's not that you get better at it, but you, because you've done more things, like I said, with the music. And I know what that does. I know how acrylic works on wood and on paper and on found objects. And I have the same approach to, to drawing and painting as I do to making music. I'll, yeah. I'll make a mark on anything. I'll use mud, I use tea, I use beer, coffee, mm-hmm. uh, flowers to make a mark and to make an image and to experiment and to see what can that do. And my merch for the show on the 18th, I don't have, because it's a digital release, my merch is going to be all small drawings and small paintings. Awesome. Little songs on paper. Yeah. No, I think that there's a lot more value in things like that. I had always, prior to the pandemic, I was getting ready to release an album and I had this idea for all of our merchandise to be all of these things that weren't necessarily music that you could buy, but other limited edition handmade trinkets of various Bro- styles and shapes. Plates and cups. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. People like the little small things. And I sell them cheap, so people, you mm-hmm. know, it's 10 bucks, whatever. Especially, yeah. A cassette or something. Yeah, because I've had this thing where, you know, I've put out my music on on vinyl because it's my, pref- it's, I'm, I'm a guy, I like that stuff. I like records and I like having music on that format. But it's undeniable that a lot of the people that might buy this record they may never listen to it. They're basically just buying a piece of plastic that maybe they'll hang up or it'll be laying around the house. And it's like, okay, if you don't want to listen to the record, you just want to buy a piece of plastic off me. I'd rather it be something that has more function in your home rather yeah, than yeah, just an yeah. unused record. Yeah, It'd probably we be cheaper. A, from- I put out a cassette up here with this other band I was involved in up here, the uh, folk band, The Wandering Rocks. Mm-hmm. Not a cassette, but a CD. And a bunch of young kids came to our shows and we were like, oh, we've got merch over here. They're like, we don't have CD players. They've no CD players in their car. It's not in their computers. Yeah. When I got a new laptop here, the one we're on now. I had to get the one that was in the window because it still had the uh, CD input. Yeah. The, the college kids don't have CDs Mm-mm. on their uh, devices, so yeah, it's hard to know with CDs. Yeah, yeah. It, it's CD, CDs are getting a bad rep right now. I think that they're they a very may come, conv- they may come back. Oh, I they will. Making cassettes. I'd like to make cassettes. Cross Signals made some cassettes years ago. Mm-hmm. It came in a brown bag with a stone and a condom <laughs> and maybe a drawing. It was called Tattoo the Wicked in Advance of the Crime. Okay. A little cassette and uh, you know, a little bag of goodies to take home. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's awesome, man. Well, Carl, thank you again for you. taking the time to chat. Yeah. easily could Uh, again June 18th Thunderbird Cafe June 18th take care I hope you have a good day take care thanks again and uh, I'll see you later thanks very much take care see ya